Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. So I really try hard to meet the moment in fraud prevention and just e-commerce and marketplace and technology and for vendors and for merchants. I do my best. You know, in February, when account takeovers were just spiking astronomically. That's what we talked about. When refund fraud has had some changes in dynamics, we talk about that. The chargeback situation with Visa's latest announcement for chargeback rules, which haven't listened to episode 110. I really hope you do. It's very important. Those are all things that I try to meet the moment or provide you with the content that you want or need at the time. And I know I don't get it 100% right, but I do the best that I can. And in thinking last week about what we're going to talk about this week, I just couldn't help but think that every conversation I've had in the last few weeks has had a very similar through line, whether it's people talking about my boss is just acting weird or stressed out and they're unpredictable. And for people who are in fraud prevention, we're pretty good at reading people. And so when somebody is not their normal self, it can kind of throw us off. Unfortunately for my husband, that happens in my marriage as well. But as soon as it's like, oh, something's different. What's wrong? I know it before he does, right? The same with bosses and, and all of that. So we're feeling it from up above. Then it's my staff is really nervous and they're acting fearful and uncertain and rightfully so. The economic uncertainty right now is causing a lot of changes and some of those changes are impacting a lot of people. We see almost daily at this point layoff announcements on LinkedIn from our peers that you can't help but think, oh gosh, am I next? There's budget cuts and there's, we need to do more with less. And there's just a lot of stress and every company's handling it a little bit differently. Some companies want to batten down the hatches to extend their runway or extend how much they can stay alive or stay afloat. Other companies are trying to sink money into customer acquisition or marketing campaigns to try to grow that top line. But when it comes to fraud prevention and payments as well, but we mostly talk about fraud prevention here, there's a lot of stress because we're seen as a cost center. And I think that that is, we've collectively done a disservice to our peers within other departments within companies to not explain the fact that we can do a lot more than just be a cost center and that we do a lot more than that. But oftentimes we're talking about fraud prevention and chargebacks and all that, that people just assume, oh, you're canceling orders, you're stopping sales, you're stopping new accounts. And I don't know if we do the best job at reframing that. And that will be talked about on this episode some, as well as in a few upcoming episodes too. Last week, I talked with PJ Rohal about career paths and kind of personal uncertainty. And this week, I'm talking to Gil Rosenthal, who this is his fourth time on the podcast. If you haven't heard him before, he's been on Fraudology three other times, twice in January of 2022, as well as May of this year too. So episodes 50, 52, and 96. And Gil is really kind of that other side of the coin for me. I am so kind of monofocused sometimes on e-commerce and marketplaces. And there's some overlap into fintech, but not 
as much. And whereas Gil has focused his career on consumer fintech, both in fraud, risk, and credit, and he's worked with PayPal and Bluevine. And then now, as he's gone freelance over the last year, he's worked with a lot of different types of companies. His specialty are really around neobanks, B2C or B2B lending, and card issuing. And those part, those entities and companies are stressed out too with a lot of uncertainty. So what we decided to do is a little different than usual. I'm not really interviewing Gil. In this case, he's just kind of my co-host and it's fun to have that. I asked him to come with his top three money-saving or revenue-generating ideas for fraud prevention teams or revenue protection or what your risk management, whatever you're calling your department. And I came with three as well. And we have very different styles and we didn't actually compare notes ahead of time. So I think it, it will hopefully be helpful for everyone. I didn't want this to just be about e-commerce and chargebacks and that type of thing. I wanted it to really encompass everyone that listens. So that's why we had this conversation. So like I said, I really felt like this was something that we both could talk about, not just because in our consultancies, we're doing that with companies right now. That is my inbox is full of that, whether it is chargeback recovery improvement or chargeback reduction or vendor assessments. I know his inbox is full with changing up credit strategies, as well as fraud prevention and KYC. And this is a good time for efficiencies and to make sure that we're doing the right things. And it's also a good time to communicate to your business by showing them that you do a lot more than stopping sales or stopping account opening and finding that money under the couch cushion, so to speak, right? Finding those extra dollars to be able to go to your leadership and say, hey, thought this might be helpful or we're starting this new initiative and wanted to get your buy-in or we reviewed the data and we've identified this area of opportunity. So in this next little bit, you're going to hear Gil and I share those and kind of provide some practical advice on ways to save your company some money and or grow your revenue creatively from your department. And my hope is that that is a productive and proactive way to help curb some of that fear and uncertainty as well as communicate up to your business. And I've probably said that six times now, sorry, but that is so critically important right now, not just because some people somewhere are in maybe within your company or others are making layoff decisions, but also because you need and want a seat at the table for this. And I'm going to talk more about it on Thursday's episode, but I have a lot of experience going through a economic downturn and a recession in a fraud department for a startup 12 years ago. And I don't usually talk about like the negative experiences or the stories, but I think that that's what the moment's calling for. And I've gotten a couple emails that I'll answer as well on Thursday that I think it'll make more sense why I'm wanting to share these. And it's not really going to be like a complaining fest, just maybe it might be helpful for you at the very least to have some commiseration and at the most to help spur some ideas. And even if, you know, any of these things that Gil and I talk about don't specifically apply to your business, I hope that they do help you think of how it could affect or how it could play into your business, right? Okay, so they said this. We don't have that, but maybe we could do it this way. So with that, of course, as always, I will put a link to Gil's LinkedIn profile in the show notes. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I can't wait to hear what you think. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So 
What is sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other people business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Well, today, my good friend Gil Rosenthal is back with us at Fraudology, honestly, back by popular demand. Gil, thank you again for making time to uh, join me on this episode. Of course. Anytime, Chris. I, I love Fraudology and I, and I love talking to you. And so two of my favorite things at the same time is always great. I love that so much. And I'm grateful, especially if there's a week that I'm like, oh, shoot, I forgot to book a guest. Gil, and you're so sweet. But also, I mean, every time it seems like there, I get a lot of people really appreciate your perspective and our perspectives together. In fact, we have had a couple of companies reach out and ask us if we do live training and we're working with at least one to do that soon. So that was kind of a fun surprise. I mean, I haven't had that done with any of my other guests. And not to say that I wouldn't consider it, but I think you and I both have two different sides of the coin of knowledge. And there are a lot of companies that are kind of in the middle between e-commerce and fintech or the financial institution piece. And so we kind of complete that. Yeah, totally. I think part of that is this is fun. And I think I like it when I hear people who talk about things that they enjoy doing. And I think we enjoy having these conversations. I agree with that. And it's kind of great that when I first interviewed you, you were kind of at the beginning of your freelance journey and weren't sure if that was what you were going to keep doing or not. And you've done it. Like, I mean, I, I think you're still thinking that every day, right? We, exactly. I still, after almost eight years, I'm like, oh, for once in a while, a steady paycheck does sound nice. But you've been able to work with some really awesome companies and do some cool things over this last year. So it's been fun for me to watch. Thank you. That is very kind. And yes, I've been very fortunate. And I'm also, I'm very thankful for everyone that's helped me get my footing under me in it because it is new and exciting and you were an immense help. So thank you very much. So welcome. No, I'm, I'm happy to have other people join me. I'm like, here, here's all the mistakes I made. Don't do that. <laughs> it's basically it. 
Well, so today is actually kind of stemmed from a LinkedIn post you did like almost a month ago where you were talking about the economy's going down. That's very clear. We're reminded by it every day in different ways. And from your perspective, you are sharing some ways that fintechs and, and companies, especially lenders, can take advantage of opportunities, right? You can find opportunities. I kind of sometimes refer to it as looking under the couch cushion for pennies, but it's way more than pennies. Sometimes it can be millions. And this has kind of become one of my specialties because I went through the first economic downturn for a startup and had to do it and just kind of like, okay, where are we going to find this money? Either through saving money or recovering more. So I thought that because you and I are two different sides of the coin, I'll probably have more tactical suggestions for e-commerce marketplaces, some fintechs. You'll have more tactical suggestions for fintechs and financial institutions and banks and lenders, but there will be overlap. And I would also say that there's actually more overlap. (laughs) We came to this call, like not knowing what the other three were, mostly because I forgot to give you editing access on the Google Doc. (laughs) I'll call myself out. I'm not best at details, but we do. I think they're very complimentary and not too surprising, but they're not redundant. Like they're complimentary, they're not redundant. Yeah, I, I, first of all, I totally think that. And I think the the concept of two sides of the coin is perfect because in the, we were kind of talking about them. That That's exactly what came to my mind mm-hmm. is these are very complimentary. And I definitely think that with the way, not just the economy is going, but specifically our industry is going mm. right now, And the hit it's taking, which is, I think, in a lot of cases, unfortunate. And I think before we talk about maybe tips for how to try and save or recover funds for your company, we we can talk about like a couple of tips for people that are like now in the unfortunate situation of looking for a job. And and my first tip would be follow Carice on LinkedIn because, <laughs> because what you've done with the, like you've set up a group for people in the industry, you share job postings and you help people connect between those who are looking for a job and those who are looking for good people. And I think that is super useful and I highly recommend it to anyone who's currently in that type of situation, follow Chris on LinkedIn, try and see what opportunities you can find from that. That was not the first tip I was going to, I was expecting you to say. So that's something. <laughs> but I mean, I do try. I I would always love to do more, right? But A, it's not, I mean, it's not a revenue generator. I'm not a recruiter. That's not a path that I plan on going. But I do know a lot of people and I I'm grateful to be the hub of the wheel or the conduit or whatever. And I mean, I just received an introduction to someone new just this afternoon from someone that I haven't talked to in years, but said, hey, I was talking to this person and they're having a really hard time finding a fraud operations manager. I thought maybe you could help. And I was like, oh my gosh, there are so many people that just have gotten laid off in those roles. Yes. I mean, sometimes a specific person comes to mind. Other times I say, I suggest putting it in the group. And the group can take it, whatever. And I've been so humbled that several people have gotten jobs that way. And it's not a comprehensive list, but I'm connected to a lot of people who will post jobs. And so whenever I see that, I put it in the group, as well as whenever a company comes to me and says, hey, I'm looking for someone. Well, this one particular person came to mind because of X, Y, Z, but I think we should put it in the group too. So it's just my little way of trying to help the industry, but I appreciate that. Yeah, which is great. And to be honest, I would recommend like follow other type of lists, try and join a group like professional groups yeah. that have job postings and are for people who know who they're looking for, right? And then it's a lot more relevant. It's a lot more targeted. 
it helps a lot to kind of narrow your scope. But yeah, I, I've seen and heard of a few different people who saw job postings there that they applied for. So yeah, I definitely think what you're doing is a huge service to the community. Thank you. Well, the other day I posted a dream job that I was like, Ooh, I could do this maybe hmm, for, and it was for payments, not fraud, but payments and fraud are, are pretty closely related in e-commerce and, and payments are the lifeblood of e-commerce companies, but I've done payments as well, but payments position for Hawaiian airlines based <laughs> in Hawaii. And I just got back from Maui. So I was like, I don't But I know a few people that were like, I never would have seen that job because I'm not looking in Hawaii, but I happen to be connected to somebody that works at the airline. And I saw it and I'm like, hey, who doesn't want to relocate to Hawaii these days? So who knows? But yeah, I'm happy to help that way. And I think I just did an episode with PJ Rohal on similar things too. And I think to your point, there are a lot of people that are either have been laid off or nervous that they're going to be laid off. And I think that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do this topic is I'm not saying this is going to be insurance to not get laid off, but at the very least, you're going to get some great bullet points at the end for your resume. I would also say networking with peers, not just reaching out and saying, hey, can I pick your brain? Can we talk? Because everybody's busy commenting on people's posts or doing something for them first, right? If you work with somebody that you really liked and you would love a recommendation from them, write a recommendation for them on LinkedIn first, right? Like those kind of things, do something for someone else first, and then they'll usually be more inclined to stop what they're doing and do something for you. Yeah, totally. And I think connecting with peers is is mm-hmm. super valuable. And yeah, I agree if we're saying like, what can be helpful? You should do that regardless of the economic conditions. That's uh, true. Like this is a tight-knit community. People are so happy to help each other and you should use that because it helps. It really makes a big difference. And even just someone telling you, hey, I've seen this fraud attack Mm. that has really hit my business and you just go look for it in your books. If you find that fraud (laughs) attack before someone else pointed out to you, that by itself. Oh yeah. Huge props, right? Huge. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. Yeah. I mean, the networking collaborating, I will say to do every day, all day. Uh, It's a little harder when we're not all traveling around and meeting up with each other. It's starting to happen and you never know. I mean, I think a lot of people say you don't, you should build your network before you need it. And I agree with that. But if you didn't, you can start somewhere. Just my whole thing is just, there's a couple of people that, and I think I shared this a while ago, like there was somebody who I met almost a year ago now at an event that I just thought, wow, this person knows a lot, not just about fraud. Actually, fraud wasn't his main skill. It was like all e-commerce operations and da, da, da. And I introduced him to a couple of people that I thought he would enjoy meeting, not because, I mean, he had been at the same company for seven years. There was no thought that he was looking just, hey, I think you guys might have some stuff in common, like whether it was where they lived or wherever. And I never heard from him and neither did the people I introduced him to. And then just like two months ago, I heard from him, hey, I got laid off from my company. Who do you know that would be interested in hiring me? And I was kind of like, dude, like... I wish you would, you know, not that I'm, not that I'm going to like, oh, you didn't reply. So I'm not helping. Like, not that, but just like, I did try to help. Who knows what could have happened if you just would have had those conversations. So I just use that as like a yeah. cautionary tale. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I, I fully agree with that network constantly. People in the industry with peers, it's always worth the time. Absolutely. So let's get into our list, shall we? As I I think I was starting to mention, I can't remember if I finished my sentence or my thought because sorry, but if they don't, they may not all apply to you, but I think hopefully 
they'll at least help spur some ideas specific to your business model or your company or where you can advise someone else in, in a department of like, hey, have you looked into this? Like, and yeah, to your earlier point, these are all great things to do at any time, but there's a little more pressure on now with the economic downturn, not just for self-preservation, but company preservation as well. And to show your leadership that the fraud department isn't just a cost center, that there are opportunities to add money, either through cost savings or recovery. Fully agree with that. And I also fully agree with what you said that this isn't for everyone, but that I think in most cases, if you're already doing these things, that congratulations, you're in the top 10% of our industry, <laughs> yeah. right? Because we wouldn't um, share these if these were yeah. best practices that everyone did, right? Exactly. And then we also, I think a part of this is, is we both work with different companies and we get to see what they're not doing because that's, that's kind of how we get to us. make our money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, in a way, Definitely. these are these are projects that we have done or do currently to help our clients. So we're at least helping with the ideas for it without sending anyone who's listening an invoice. <laughs> <laughs> but I think sh- sharing these is valid by itself. Yeah, totally. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I think actually you wanted me to go first. So we'll go from you. No, we just want to make sure everyone knows I'm not trying to hog the spotlight here. This is kind of more like a co-host situation than an interview because we people out don't know you. They can go back and listen and I will let them know about that in the intro. So the first one I was thinking, and I kind of got really specific, reviewing your transaction monitoring processes. I think even more fully than that, just like reviewing everything. It's important to do that like once a year, really looking at are we are we being as accurate as we can be? Are we fishing with a net or are we fishing with a pole, right? When you fish with a net, other stuff is going to come up. Oftentimes it's going to lead to false positives. How can we be more specific and surgical? The first kind of suggestion I have is to really perform a deep dive on your false positives. You can have a senior analyst, you know, QA some order or like orders declined manually and automatically, depending on the size of your business. And you can do all of them or you can have them do test cases, five from each analyst or plus like 50 from your automated, whatever that is. And just QA that. Was there something that was missed? Was there something? "Mm, I actually don't think this was fraud or something like that. Like where could you have changed your processes. Maybe that leads to a rule update. Maybe that leads to some model training or or other things like that. Maybe if you're realizing, huh, all of these orders went to manual review and they all have the basic makeup and they all were approved. Well, let's make sure that they just auto pass next time. Like those types of things, really getting into the details. Another thing you can do to reduce false positives is implement a watch and see program. And that's something that I humbly had to do. Well, actually, like it was like eating humble pie, really. It wasn't like, oh, I'm humbled to do this. Mm -mm. It was while I worked for the startup, Agbar or Steel, that didn't really go up all the way. I do think last I saw they had a website, but not really in full production and they don't have a big staff or anything. But they, which is odd, but that's like a whole other story about why anyone would want to keep that going. But when there started to be nervousness, there was a concern of like, well, what is Carice's team declining? And there was a lack of understanding that I was trying to pass as many as possible. And I legitimately thought so. I thought every single order my team was canceling was 100% fraud. And I think that that's kind of standard. But actually, when we created, because the tool was ours, it was something I had created with our engineering team just by writing it out on a spiral notebook. Because of that, they were able to implement, a, except and watch was actually what it was called. And 
And I called that the CYA button for my team and said, look, I know these are the ones where we can't confirm that they're fraud. And we would usually decline them because for those ones where you're kind of iffy, we would default to decline. But now that the company's in a different place and as well as just a lot of factors, we've been asked to, instead of if they're confirmed fraud, if we can absolutely confirm it's fraud, you decline those all day long. But the ones that you're just not sure about in your gut, let's accept and watch them. And I was humbled by the end of the month, I would go in and see how many turned into chargebacks. And I was very humbled that it was relatively small. It was like less than a third of those orders that my team would have canceled actually turned into chargebacks. And because we had a really low chargeback ratio, we could afford that risk. And I explained to the senior leadership, right? Like when they asked for this, I didn't just say, oh, okay, I was really concerned. And I said, I'm concerned the chargebacks are going to go up. If chargebacks go up, are you going to put it on me? And they're like, no. Okay. And that's, I'm willing to do this. If you're not able to do an accept and watch program, you can also do an AB test on some attributes that aren't confirmed fraud, but would usually be declined. So maybe you tell one analyst, hey, on those orders that we would usually default to decline, just keep doing that. You tell the other analyst on the orders that we would usually default to decline past them, but have a way to track them so you can go back and find out the final status. Those are kind of my first bullet in this whole like review transaction monitoring process. There's two others, but I want to stop there and ask you, Gil, what you, you know, if you have anything to add. I mean, I think it's a great point, right? Like the testing into your own decision making Mm -hmm. is super valuable. I think and sometimes it also helps with efficiencies. Mm. A part of what you need to do these days is boost efficiencies. A lot of departments are being asked to do more with less and have your headcounts get frozen. Your Mm. new hires aren't coming through as quickly as possibly they should. So looking into your own practices is super valuable. I think the watch and see or accept and wait, I think that's great. From my perspective, that's a, in my terminology, usually that's treated as a control group, but control groups are amazing, right? Like if you can afford them and you know how to track them quickly, they're great. The only thing is that NC portion of it, right? Like you have to keep track of them. You have to have a feedback loop. So that they don't explode, they don't turn into more fraud or the same, either by the same bad actor or because they found a vulnerability that now exists in your system. So as long as you're very controlled about your control group. Yes. I love this idea. I think it has a lot of value that can be brought into the business. And at the very least, it helps show we are about making the right decision. Right. Not just about stopping business, which a lot of business unit people tend to think that that's what the fraud team is about. Mm-hmm. And it never is, but it's a good way of signaling to them, like we understand the moment we're in. Yeah. My hope is that all of these that we're going to share are like that, right? That they really show the company that in the you know other business units, like we are team players and we're doing our best to try to protect the business. Our job is to protect the revenue, whether that's saving money somewhere on what we pay and how we do things or whatever, or it's by increasing revenue by approving more orders that aren't going to turn into losses. So that's exactly it. Another thing that I think is kind of falls under the reviewing transaction monitoring process and just all the processes within the front team is to consider implementing a trash to treasure solution. That's 
kind of a colloquialism, so but I'll explain it in a minute. To recover decline transactions without additional chargeback risk. I am very curious to know what your version of that might be, but for e-commerce or marketplaces, that can be one of a couple things. One is there are, there's at least two companies I know that will take just all the transactions that your core fraud solution has declined and run them through their models. And there's one particular company. I just, I'm always blown away by their numbers as far as how much they can turn around and approve after another fraud tool has recommended declining an order. In some cases, it honestly usually averages out to 60 to 85% of the declined orders, depending on the fraud provider that that merchant uses. This company can then do that and they provide a chargeback guarantee. So you don't have that additional chargeback risk. It really pays for itself very quickly. And this company knows that Obviously, they would make more money by doing all of it, but they also know that a lot of merchants aren't able to change their core fraud tool for various reasons. So this is a really, a really good solution that more companies are turning to than ever in the last few months. But I've been preaching this for a long time. Having kind of this double check, right? Don't put all your eggs in that one basket of one fraud provider. Have it run through something else and you're only paying them when they approve something. There are other companies that provide secondary payment options. So if a transaction declines from the bank or if they feel like it's very risky to take on the the chargeback risk for something, they might offer another payment method or payment solution. And that varies by provider or by payment provider, but that's another kind of couch cushion to look under, so to speak. So what is that or is there a version of that in fintech and financial services where you can have a trash to treasure solution as well? Is that in the credit decisions, the KYC, or what does that look like? So I think I've seen this done in a lot of different ways. And then there are definitely vendors who are like basically do their initial offering is yeah. saying, give us your trash. We'll try and find the treasure in it. But I think the way I view it, especially for an internal team, and if you don't want to spend on integrations right now, and is to think about this from the perspective of what are my highest value actions? Meaning, Hmm. assuming these are good customers, where would we make the most value out of our time? And then spend more time on those. And that time can be more review time. That time can be approve them and then follow up and set up a program with customer success of double checking. You can find different things, but as soon Hmm. as you cross a certain threshold of money, you can take that decline and with more effort, sift between the good and the bad. Mm. And you can basically justify that extra effort. So that is how I tend to view like the trash to treasure efforts. Yeah, no, it makes uh, sense. Yeah. So if you have to choose where to start, just look into where is the highest value, dollar value in your declines, in your rejections, mm. either at customer acquisition, at transactions, wherever. Account creation. I mean, yeah, because it yeah. really varies based on the type of company. Yeah. So the last thing, you know, I put in is kind of very similar to that. Are there non-fraud orders that have traditionally been declined? So we're not talking about like, wow, this looks like someone's using a stolen payment method. There have been examples of merchants that I know that have done this. So it's some good success. So for instance, and I may have shared this story a year ago, but I know not everyone listens to every episode and understandably, there was a merchant who shared with me that they got a huge win, not just in bringing money in, but mostly from their leadership realizing, 
oh, the fraud department has a lot of good insights and they aren't just trying to like stop business where, you know, when the COVID-19 happened and it just, there was a lot of fear before there were some companies that did really, really well. And there were others that didn't, but even the companies that did, ended up doing really, really well were, were nervous. And that was one of these companies, they're consumer goods and they have their own brand of items. And I've definitely worked with luxury goods items and or companies and know how big of a deal their brand is. And so there are a lot of companies that may sell their own products who won't allow resellers. So anyone with reseller behavior, where they're buying in bulk or they're buying the most, the best item that might sell in another part of the world for much more, things like that. They'll just cancel them because the brand department has decided they don't want anyone else selling their products. They don't want there to be any compromises and they want to only be the only source, et cetera. But this fraud manager went to the leaders of the business and said, hey, I don't know if you guys remember this conversation because of the instructions you gave here. We've been stopping these. We added them up from last month and the ones that we stopped last month were a total of X. I just wanted to verify that this is still aligned with our business goals and that we it's more important for us to stop resellers than it is for us to add X amount to our bottom line. The decision was made. I don't think we hate resellers anymore. <laughs> Other examples are freight forwarders. Again, do your risk assessment on these for sure. And when you do add that, make sure that you do have a feedback loop that you are able to code or tag these. Or even, I mean, if you have to use a spreadsheet, you have to use a spreadsheet, but hopefully you can tag them somewhere where you're saying like, we believe this is a freight forwarder. We believe this is a reseller. And then going back to see what happens to it afterwards. And if they tried to scam it or something happened or whatever, but those are areas of opportunity. So share with the business, what's the total opportunity? What are the risks? And present it to your leadership. Yeah, I, I think that's brilliant because I think a lot of times if you dig into your logics, your rules, your decline reasons, there's a bunch of stuff in there that isn't really there to prevent fraud. It's there to prevent undesirable business. Mm-hmm. And that is a in the lifetimes, that is a business decision that can be reconsidered. The depending one thing on priorities. I would, <laughs> exactly. Depending on priorities. And depending in a lifetimes on market economics. Um, mm-hmm. The one thing I would add to this is I would probably try and slice this into a bucket that has the least amount of actual fraud or actual bad actors in it so that you're not, for example, with freight forwarders, right? We know fraudsters love using freight forwarders too. If you allow, if you, before you were blocking this and you were mostly blocking good actors, but one of the side effects might've been that bad actors that rely on freight forwarding are just not using your system. They're going to someone else. You'll mm-hmm. bring that back, might bring up back some bad actors. So like if you're thinking about a way where you'll enable business, try and think about it in a way where you won't need a month later to come back and, and tighten the faucet back up. Mm. Try and think about it from the get-go in a way that you feel will be fairly secure. That would be my only... No, I, my I agree with you. Yeah. And I think when I included freight forwarders, I was mostly thinking of those orders that do, you know, that aren't fraud right now. Granted, yeah. there's a lot of, there are some other risks, right? If the freight forwarder doesn't get them their product, are they able to get a, a chargeback, et cetera? Like make sure your terms of service include something to the effect. If you're shipping to somewhere other than your house, you are assuming the risk once it arrives at the shipping address, like we no longer have liability and ensure that you are highlighting that. 
should a chargeback happen? But yeah, to your point, not 100% of transactions sent to freight forwarders are fraud. So kind of what I was saying was don't cancel them just because they're going to a freight forwarder without looking at the risk. So and don't don't approve or cancel just because it's going to a freight forwarder. Instead, look at the risk of the transaction rather than just all or nothing. That's uh, that was more my so I'm really glad you clarified uh, that. uh, (laughs) 100%. And like again, finding within those who are sending their freight forwarders, for example, the transactions where but the IP looks good. It's consistent with past behavior. You don't see any other weird signals or negative signals on the app. Or uh, like on the transaction. Or, yeah. Right. And there are some, for lack of a better term, like bad freight borders. So knowing that too, right? So like I said, it's not just like a light switch, right? It's doing the research right. and looking at the area of opportunity. Is this area of opportunity worth the risk? Do we have enough bandwidth in our chargebacks that if they go up as a lesson to us that, oh, maybe we need to go back to that rule or whatever, that we can tolerate it for a month. Don't just turn it on and walk away. But these are things to start thinking about where, to your point, what are some other things because fraud often is the gatekeepers. What are some other things that aren't fraudy? I mean, just another example that popped in my head was when I worked for an online travel company, we recognized that some prepaid bin numbers, a lot of prepaid bin numbers back then would never turn into chargebacks because there are some prepaid bins that can and some that can't. And I plan to have Jared Price on soon to help answer some of those questions. Jared Price from Income, who was here talking about private label gift cards last time, but I think after summer is over, he had said that he'd come back and talk more about like card brand gift cards and card brand prepaids because there's a lot of confusion there. But we identified those order or those bins. And even though the behavior was very risky, a lot of it was last minute bookings. A lot of it was actually used in sex work and things like that. If we can't get a chargeback on that bin because it's an anonymous card and it wasn't registered, why are we canceling it? I kind of mixed up a few of the models for sure, but that was a business decision that was made similarly. And we just kept an eye on the chargebacks and we had never received a chargeback from that bin before. So, okay, well, take the risk or yeah. maybe there isn't one at all. So those are kind of the things that you can start looking at and diving into a little more. Yeah. And again, I think these are all very good conversation starters. So if you're able to make a business case or the beginning of a business case, people in the, on the business units are likely to listen and likely to want to have a follow-up conversation. That by itself is value. Yeah. Especially if you feel like you're not listened to when you're saying like, hey, this is risky, that's risky. This will help change it's almost like a little bit of PR as well. It'll help to change. It won't fully change it, but help to change the narrative that some people maybe have thought of like, oh, they'll just say no to new things or whatever. And also know that there are other people in other departments that are coming up with some crazy schemes on how to add more money. And you would much rather be in control of this than that. I think I'm going to share this story on Thursday's episode. So I won't give it all away, but I kind of forgot some of the stories from the trenches that I had during the last recession until I did a webinar recently with a couple of people for Identic, Holly Sandberg at Ticketmaster and Audio Rod at Identic. I did a webinar with them the other day and I was remembering some of the stories when we were talking and they were like, you need to talk about those because <laughs> cra- fear makes people do crazy stuff. But I think you'd rather be in control of it than them coming to you and saying, we're going to start this brand new thing that's risky as hell and you can't say no because we need the money, right? You want yeah. to do it. And I think that leads into your third tip. Yeah. So I think my tip, it's 
relates a lot to what, like all the points you just made and the concept of be proactive, right? And from my perspective, what I'm trying to think about when I tell people to be proactive isn't just what you should be proactive about, which I think the tips you just gave is basically the things you should be proactive about. You just covered them amazingly. I think it's also how to be proactive and how to be proactive. A big part of that is what capabilities do you have on your team? And from my perspective, the holy grail for a fraud prevention ops team and, and frontline team is to be able to have people who can do two things at the same time. Top-down analysis, meaning look at data and data trends and turn them into business recommendations or business cases. And at the same time, can do bottom-up analysis, can actually look case-by-case case at transactions, at customers, do perform those reviews and gain insights. Because if they can do both, they are a self-functioning unit. They can find their leads and they can verify their leads. And that is what you want to build in your team. You don't have both of those capabilities in the same person, try and pair it together two people, right? who each have their own thing, but will work together well. But the goal is to try and be proactive because most fraud prevention teams, especially when things get tight, especially when resources are low, when you're asked to do more with less, you don't have the resources. And the immediate impact is you become reactive. All you do is just follow the fire drills, just try and put out every fire you have, meet SLAs, give back all of the answers that you need to keep up with your inbox and things like that. You stop trying to innovate. You stop trying to get better and putting a couple of people from your team and finding time for them to actually focus on the proactive stuff. That's how you actually get efficient. That's how you actually are able to do more with less. So that's my tip is try and find those people, try and carve out the time for them. Don't let go of your proactive efforts, even if you're being stressed. I think those are very good points. And I was kind of thinking about how that would apply to other things. And in the middle of the last big recession that we had in the U.S., and I know it impacted other parts of the world too, Expedia hired me to come help fix this first party fraud problem, right? And the first thing I did was did the bottom up analysis. I dove into the details and I looked for the trends. And then I kind of did that top down where it was like, okay, we need to create a new process. We need to create a new team and justified, hey, I was able to identify this much. And I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about that actually in a minute about a little bit about how to replicate some of what I did there. But like I was able to do some of that and be able to justify a whole team. And here I interviewed Dominic Squio a few weeks ago, who was on that team three years later, like crazy world. And so it was, it was both, right? And I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm just using an example of like a real life example that I know of to kind of demonstrate what that means, what that could look like and yeah. finding new opportunities for the business that they didn't know were available. Totally. And and I think, look, no one can do, if you're not classifying freight forwarders, mm -hmm. the example we just talked about, right? Yeah. If you're not classifying them in your database, no one can pull that information and do and build the business case. So sometimes you just need people who can do the bottom up analysis and tell you, hey, we should start classifying freight forwarders because there's something here. And, mm. and then if those same people can both help you classify the freight forwarders and then help do the research and suddenly you have the ability to do a lot more mm. with your team. Hundred percent. Oh my gosh! And here you were worried that we weren't gonna that we were gonna run out of time, and I I wasn't. But <laughs> we're just yeah. at number two now. But what is what is your second tip? My second tip is quite short and simple. Go conservative. A lot of companies 
treat fraud prevention as a hindrance to business. We talked about this quite a few times, but actually when you go boil it down, when companies take a conservative approach to fraud prevention, they spend less on their operations trying to clean this up. They can find other opportunities with their existing customers. And as long as you do it in a measured way where you are reducing your losses like in a properly matching ratio, to how much you're reducing your top line, your revenues, you can still make money for the business, but it allows you to be a lot more efficient. If you're being asked to do more with less, which is like the way I'm viewing these things, like then I think going conservative and trying to convince your business hey, let's put this friction point heater. When someone is making a suspicious transaction, let's start sending them a 2FA just to make sure, right? That's not <laughs> extreme conservatives, right? Like you're not saying let's reject 20% of our business. You're adding a bit and that additional fraction can make a big difference both for your team and for the business's bottom line. And this is why we thought that these tips are very complimentary because mine is in a similar about using that example that you said, as far as like, maybe some, sometimes it means adding a little something to be able to feel more confident about approving so many more orders. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the reasons why my second tip is performing vendor assessments. You know, I talked a little bit about this on another episode and that was actually what I I think I did that episode right around when you did your first LinkedIn post about this. But so I talked a little bit more about like asking for pricing reviews and things like that before. But you know, the three points is one is perform an assessment of the your current risk stack and the vendors that you rely on. What is the performance quality? Is there a gap there? Is there something where, wow, if we just had one more thing, if we just had one more thing to get kind of hang our hat on and know that this person is who they say they are, we could approve so much more. As well as their cost, there are some companies that are ridiculously priced. Or if you signed up with a vendor five, 10 years ago, they might be a lot cheaper to other users now, right? Or you signed up several years ago and now you have a lot more volume you can get depending on how your pricing is, whether it's a percentage of transactions or pennies per API call or pennies per transaction or per KYC, whatever that is. And then find those gaps in the stack and identify newer, better solutions that can reduce or consolidate costs and increase accuracy. There have been several newer companies I've been really impressed with that could replace a couple of other ones, right? And I'm not going to name them, obviously, we know that. But, you know, if there are companies that are have a better way of authenticating that aren't just relying on public records data, the same data that often fraudsters have records to, right? If they have anonymous data merchant network, if they have a really redundant process for authentication, mixing data and device, those things can be put up front and they can then, there's a few things that can happen, right? If you do all that up front and you authenticate the person in a different way, then you can then feel, okay, we feel confident about just passing them through. Maybe we don't run them through the fraud solution or the transaction risk solution, or maybe we do, but it's less risk. Or maybe another idea, and this is something I spoke about at, I think, MRC a few months ago. And that is if you're able to rely on authentication ahead of time, like if you're an e-commerce company and you don't typically do KYC, like a marketplace would do for a seller, et cetera, or a fintech or something else, there are some vendors within the KYC space where you can feel confident that they're using their device and all these other things, using all kinds of newer technology and redundancies and et cetera. You can then not only pass them through, but you could 
provide that list to marketing and say, hey, I verified these users. You go to town, like market the heck out of them. Maybe offer some different marketing. That making marketing your friend is hard, but so worth it. And so that is one thing that I think is really starting to kind of think outside the box. Oh, maybe we can replace this piece with this piece, or maybe your current vendor has more options now because they acquired other companies, et cetera. And so you can consolidate how many invoices you're sending and consolidate the pricing a little bit more. And then I did mention this more in another episode, but go out to your solution providers, the partners that you work with, request a pricing review with a reason, right? So it's been three years and a lot's changed. Or I was talking to another merchant that signed up with you guys recently, and it sounds like maybe you've changed your pricing structure. And I don't think it should all be about cost. I actually have a rant that I noted for myself to do on LinkedIn at some point about how the procurement team should not be just the only decision makers for RFIs and RFPs for fraud and chargebacks, because I've heard of way too many times where the procurement team selects one vendor because they were just slightly cheaper and then the results are drastically different and then cost millions. So it's not all about price, but definitely that's why I put assess their performance first. Know how important it is to your company and the decisions that you make and others. If they're not performing, replace them. If if there's other solutions out there that you can replace and actually save more money because you're going to be more accurate, then do that. And then then go to the solution providers that you are planning on keeping and staying with and request that pricing review. And just a note to solution providers who might not be happy with me right now, I think that you would rather give them a break on price than lose them altogether. And that can sometimes be, it's not always zero sum like that, but that that can sometimes be the, the alternative, whether that means that they leave your company for another one or that merchant company doesn't make it because they weren't able to slice enough pennies off. And that's you know, extreme, but that would be how I would approach that rather than just trying to string them for everything they're worth. I mean, I think I mentioned before I worked with a, mer- a merchant when I first started consulting that I identified like several millions of dollars more that they were paying on their current contract with their current payment processor. That just was silly. I mean, and, and their payment processor knew it because when we came back and said, hey, we did pricing checks with other people and they would be, we're paying two thirds more than we should. And I happened to know that they were paying two thirds more than their competitor that was smaller. That current company was like, yep, we get it. We don't want to lose you to the competitor. You're big. So we will meet their pricing. I think these are amazing tips. Generally, vendor assessment is great. I think what you mentioned about the vendors shouldn't take this recommendation back. I I would say that, look, I had my budget for vendors cut before Mm -hmm. and I went to the different vendors I had and checked what we could do. And some of them were willing to give me a discount. And then when my budget went up, we just used them more. And they they retained that relationship for a few more years and others couldn't do it. And in some situations, I had to make difficult choices. I had redundancies. I had multiple vendors Mm. that I was using for a similar purpose. And just had to cut one of them. So yeah, definitely having the conversation. Probably the one that wasn't willing to work with you, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, yes. And I think one of the points here is when the merchant or the fraud team is being put against the hard place, right? Like, and they're between the rock and the hard place. They, it's not always a question of, am I trying to get something for a bit cheaper? Sometimes it's, I can either afford this or I can't afford this. And right now, if we keep it at the current pricing, I can't afford it anymore. And you never know if you're truly dependent on or if you're a luxury mm. vendor. So mm-hmm. you should... 
you should always entertain the conversation. I'd say one more thing about what you said is, I think this maybe ties a bit to what we said at the top of the episode, but talk to your industry peers, right? Mm -hmm. If you're about to do vendor assessments, they might have just done them. They might be able to give you some tips about, oh, I just compared these two companies who are offering very similar products. And here's what I found. And that's invaluable because you start with a bit more knowledge. You do your process with more context. So if we were proposing before, talk to your industry peers, I'd say like this tip would be causing me to double down on that. Mm, Yeah, I 100%. And I mean, not always do I encourage talking about specific pricing with your Uh, peers. I think that one, you need to know what your company allows and if you can trust that peer, et cetera. But I will say, and there was a conversation I was kind of a part of, I actually was just listening, believe it or not, but at MRC where there was a newer merchant who they've been looking at different solutions for years. I mean, I've known them for a while and they were so excited because they finally got a solution in and it was a one that's been around for a while. And they felt like they got a really good deal because when you go from nothing to something, it's like, like we're saving so much money. But when they shared what the deal was with another company, they were like, whoa, I'm getting chargeback guarantee and I'm paying less than that. And you don't have a chargeback guarantee. And wow, also like the performance probably isn't as great, right? And so that kind of thing, I don't think that the merchant who realized that like actually told that to the other one because they were kind of like, oh, okay. You know, they're just kind of trying to figure out how to say it, but they told me like, I can't believe how much they're charging. And I'm like, yeah, because they're a bigger company. I mean, and yes, there are different things that go into the pricing, but in some cases, I know I've I've advised enough merchants and, and vendors to know that sometimes it's, well, how much can we get out of them and not how can we help them be successful? And in addition to what you said about as a vendor, you don't know if you are a luxury or a dependency. That is so true. The other thing I would say is you don't know how bad things are. And and not just maybe, maybe not for the global company, but for the fraud team, they're seen as a risk cost center. I have talked to several stressed out leaders in the fraud industry and leaders within their fraud departments at very big brand companies recently. And they are so stressed out because they've been informed Q3 is when people do their budgets for next year. And they've been informed your budget's being slashed or your budget's being frozen and yet fraud's going up significantly, right? And there are newer problems that aren't being solved and we need more hands on deck. We need more technology, et cetera. And so I think for solution providers, treating it like a partnership and a longer term partnership, knowing, okay, we're going to get through this storm and then they'll probably double down or we can talk about or whatever. I I think just have some empathy there. People are really stressed out and they're not going to ask you for a discount if they don't need it. I mean, maybe they will. There are some that will and there are some that will nickel and dime and that can come back and bite them. If this merchant has never done that before, I think just pay attention and listen and and be empathetic. Don't just be a jerk (laughs) because they're going through a lot. Yeah. And the same is true if you're a merchant and you're talking to a vendor and they say, look, we can't, we're we're hurting ourselves. Also, you don't need to be a jerk about it, right? Like even if that means that that's a problem for you, like we should always be nice to each other. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, especially because we're a small industry with long memories, it never ceases to amaze me. I'll, I'll meet someone new in fraud that I didn't know well, but like knew that they were tangential somewhere in the industry, whether they were on the vendor side or somewhere else or whatever. And we all know the same people and they have fortunately some strong personalities have a reputation everywhere they go, you know? And so I just never want to be one of those people. 
So that's, yeah, I agree. You can do everything with kindness and not be a jerk, but you can be firm and provide a business case. And if you need to make the decision that, well, if you can't come down, we just can't use it. And it might be hard, but we're going to be able to work around it. And there are some cheaper options and options and others. Like sometimes that's what you have to do just for maybe you cross train customer service agents. Like for some reason, I'm really good at being resourceful. I think partially because I was a single mom for a while. <laughs> Jeez, trying to figure out logistics for a kid when you're stuck downtown in a meeting and they've got daycare pickup at a certain time. Like, I feel like that is a skill that is transferable to a, like everywhere, especially including here, right? Or like, how am I going to pay for daycare and rent and food and this and that on this little bit? Like, you know, you just, there's some skills I, I, you pick I, up. A hundred percent. That is <laughs> like, that is by itself, like should be lines in your LinkedIn resume. Like I know how to do that. Therefore I can do so many other things. <laughs> I also sometimes say that, but when I worked on the cruise ship, I'm like, look, I could live and work with my coworkers for six weeks straight, 18 hour days with no days off. And then I got two weeks off. Like if I could do that, probably work with almost anyone. <laughs> that, that is definitely a skill. And after like the last three years, I'm not hundred percent sure I can work with my coworkers in the same office anymore because we've all been working from home for so long. Right. So. <laughs> Like you forgot deodorant or whatever it is, (laughs) as well as just, yeah, like, yeah, I don't think, I mean, let's be clear. I 20 years later, I couldn't do that, but there's a lot of things you can do when you're early twenties that you just can't do in your early forties. So our last, and I think kind of like our most important tips really for, you know, saving them, really, this is more recovering funds. I'm going to let you set the stage and then I'll kind of follow up with some specifics. Yeah. So from my perspective, it's think about collection. Think about cases where someone owes you money and they are not a victim, right? And that's, especially when you're the fraud team, the first thing you have to do is separate between first party fraud and third party fraud, victims versus debt holders. Mm. But once you identify that someone is not a victim and they owe you money, if your company isn't working on trying to recover that money, you should. And if, or you should at least look into that. And you should talk to your legal team or your, and if you have a collection team, talk with the collection team. There's the fraud team has a lot of information, especially once you've actually done an investigation. And if you've identified someone that isn't a victim, then you know quite a lot about them. You can help with that recovery effort. And there's a lot of money there. If you think whatever that bucket is of non-victims that owe you money, even just getting 15% of what they owe you back by calling them, by sending them a letter from a company lawyer, by sending them a reminder email, anything that works for your company and meets whatever threshold your company is comfortable with, that can have a pretty material impact and can come up to quite a bit of money. So what is an example of that in fintech or on the financial services part? Because I can obviously talk about examples on the e-commerce and marketplace side and I will, but like, what are some examples on that side? So the easiest would be like, if you think about neobanks, for example, Mm. or just banks, if someone gets into a negative balance because a check that they tried to deposit banks, but they already got the cash and now, now they're in a negative balance. At the very least, you should pick up the phone and ask them, especially if that negative balance stayed negative for a while, how are they planning on closing this? And you can do that in a very nice way. Right. Like you can ask if everything's okay and you notice this and what's going on. And Mm. so you can be very nice about this. Yep. But but talking to them about it, making sure that they know that you're still expecting them to close their negative balance. And that is still an obligation that they have to do at some point. And they don't want to go into like more serious collection efforts 
things like that, most people want to pay back their obligations. And a part of this is just making sure they're aware that those obligations are there and those obligations need to be paid back. It kind of surprises me that banks don't do that more. But I mean, then again, it surprises me and doesn't surprise me at the same time. Yeah, I, I think more traditional institutions, a lot of them will be doing this. And for on the fintech side, a lot of times the concept is collections is a negative customer experience. Mm. And we don't want to create a negative customer experience if we're not sure that that we have to. And when the business is focused on growth, then it's focused on growth. And the fact that there are a few hundred thousands or in some cases, millions of dollars just laying on the ground here isn't always a priority. This is the right time to start making, picking up that those that money that's lying on the ground a priority. I agree with that. And there are several different specifics depending on a company's, what they sell, et cetera, right? So for example, the startup I worked for, they rented out luxury handbags and accessories. There were a lot of people that kept items that they didn't, that their credit card wouldn't fulfill. So we had to implement a collections process. That was new to me, but it was something that just made sense to me. It felt like it was end to end, right? You go from verifying the person and that they are who they say they are. And then if you need to, you go to say, hey, I need my stuff back. And we would do varying levels of, we had kind of a I don't want to call it a waterfall, but like a kind of a, it would scale up, right? As to how like aggressive it was or whatever. But we would start with a phone call reminding them, hey, your credit card declined, et cetera, on your rental fee, et cetera. You still have our item. We either need you to send back the item or pay your bill. And then it would go up from there, right? We would, I think, send, we would send emails, of course, as part of the dunning process. We're not talking about $20 membership fees. We're talking about like $500 a week or a month rental fees for a designer handbag. So these are expensive. And then we would do, I think the next step was a letter. I can't remember if it was internal or external, but we would work with a collection agency and and make sure they were doing things that represented us as well. The decision that that company was made saying like, well, if they can't pay us, then we don't really care about the customer experience. I made some adjustments to that where, especially at first, right? It's just like, hey, we noticed that you haven't paid. Like, is there something going on? Like, is there, can we add, can we bill you on a certain day? What is that, et cetera. And then aggressively getting more. Now, when there was, you know, and we would always have a threshold for each next step. So we wouldn't be sending someone externally to collections if it had only been a month and it was $200, right? It was, there was a timeline and there was a dollar amount for each next step, all the way up to taking it to a lawyer and outside counsel who helped us create a process to first send a letter on his letterhead. And that was a couple, uh, like a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks, but it was very worth it. And that helped. But then there were people that still ignored that. And there were two examples that come to mind that actually went to civil trial and I had to like testify and everything. And it was because they had over $30,000 of our items had had it for over a year and said, yeah, I have them. But my friends have seen me carry this Louis Vuitton. My friends think that I own this Chanel handbag and our house is in foreclosure. And I don't want to admit that I rented this handbag too. I, I kind of joked that I had a front row seat to the recession for that, but we were able, and we did end up putting a lien on one of their mortgages and garnishing the other person's wages. And that was not fun. But at multiple times, I'd picked up the phone and said, hey, I am willing to like erase all of this debt if you just send me our stuff back so that we can make a profit on it again. We had tried everything else. Every business model is different. So that's not going to work for everyone. 
But then I went there as part of the chargeback process, you can implement collections to your point that they're not a victim. And this was first party fraud. Visa and MasterCard say you can go outside of their system. You may be done there unless you want to go to arbitration and take that risk. But you can send them to collections. You can have a light collections processing of aggressive. You can civilly sue them. In one of those cases that we civilly sued, there were chargebacks involved. They issued chargebacks on their rental fees, even though they had paid them for months, et cetera. But because there weren't compelling evidence rules yet, we lost those. You can take those to collections, et cetera. So I definitely, I think that there's a way to do it where it's fiscally responsible for your company, but you're not, you're not being a jerk about it and and make sure if you're partnering with outside counsel or outside collections, that their processes are aligned with the way that your company does want to treat customers. So it doesn't turn into an angry tweet, right? They may not come back as a customer, but you at least don't want that. A hundred percent. And I think you outlined in a very, in a great way, just the basics of collections that is just identify who owes you money, identify how much effort is it worth it for you to take Mm -hmm. and have an escalating process where you are constantly trying to be taken seriously. And if they didn't take you seriously enough, when you ask nicely, then you ask less nicely and you ask a bit less nicely until you reach your limit of how not nice you're willing to be. And that is a balance that each company needs to find in terms of what's worth an effort and what, how not nice they're willing to be. But I think the big point we're trying to make, and then I'm sure your tip in a second will be equally valuable around there is money that is being left here Mm -hmm. because you're not trying to pursue it because you think that it ends at the dispute or it ends at the transaction being paid back or not paid back. But there's an extra step after that. Yeah. Understanding it's possible, right? And we, to your point earlier, we're not saying just do it right away. Talk to legal, talk to the business, make sure this is something that they want, but put together a business case, right? Like, hey, this is how much we have in the dunning process or in arrears, et cetera, for this amount of time or whatever that those thresholds are for you that makes sense to your company. These are the chargebacks that we lost that we know a hundred percent. They are who they say they are and they used it. I can even show that they showed their ID to TSA and sat in the airplane seat. I can show that they were bragging about going on that trip or holding that handbag on Facebook or whatever it is, right? Like then I think it's completely justified and you're showing your company, this is the the expenses, but even if we were to get a conservative percentage back, it's going to have a huge ROI. Maybe you cross-train some customer service agents that are working in hours that aren't super busy and you ask them to just make some phone calls because they're going to do it from a customer-centric space, right? They're going to do it from a, hey, I understand things are, it's sometimes hard to remember or whatever it is, but, or it's, well, we understand, you know, and arm them with enough information, right, about the chargeback. And yes, your bank did give it back to you, but we have proof and we feel confident that if we needed to go to civil court, we really don't want to do that. But if we had to, like we could prove that it was you. So we'd rather just settle this now and not add a whole bunch of fees and legal fees. I mean, make a game out of it, make an incentive chart, right? Like be willing to give out a couple hundred dollar gift cards if they get certain amount, you know, whatever it is. But that to me is very, it's something it's available. And it's at least a decision that I think that your business deserves to make or be aware of. And like we've been saying throughout all of these, they also show that you're a team player, that you are trying, that you recognize that it's all hands on deck. And you're saying, hey, you know, that we have this, like, would this be helpful? This is what we need to do for it. But if this is a business decision that you want to make, like, let's do it. I'm prepared to staff it this way and that way and whatever. A lot of these things happen like when I start diving into the details of customer or like merchant 
just the processes, right? There's been a few things where like one time Visa had changed, oh, I mean, Visa changed the rule a few years ago, but there was one merchant that was giant. They're like very, very well known and they have low dollar transactions, but they had a lot of chargeback and we were working on solving those. But in the meantime, and I was working on root cause analysis, et cetera. But in the meantime, they found Visa announced that if you didn't accept a chargeback, like instead of just, oh, we're not going to respond to it and you will let the time come out. They were trying to incentivize and they still are responding to chargebacks in a short amount of time so that the issuing banks don't have this provisional credits on their accounts, et cetera. And I believe that the amount of money that they would Visa will charge the merchant goes up by every few days. So if you don't accept a chargeback that you know is fraud ahead of time, like within a certain amount of time, you start getting charged. And it went all the way up to like 75 cents each if you just never responded. I did the math like just on the back of a napkin really fast with how many chargebacks they had times 75 cents. I was like, it would be insanely beneficial if you got a $10 an hour temp or even a, you, know, you pay the temp click agency, the whatever, $50 an hour, click the button. You're not doing anything to respond to chargebacks. Click that button and you're saving 75 cents times thousands of chargebacks. So granted, that's, you know, one we're going to get there in a better step, but just for now, that's a Band-Aid. And there's others that I've thought of as well that I'll share on a, maybe on Thursday's episode because I know we're going over, but, you know, where like, oh, you, this is happening or that's happening. I mean, gosh, there was a fintech I'd love to talk to you about with their ACH declines and they didn't even realize that those were happening in reversals. And they were real. they, once I dug into it, I was like, you know, you had a hundred thousand, you know, ACH reversals. And by the way, those customers have never actually paid you. Like there's so many things that when you dive into the details, you just never, you never know what you're going to find. And that's like my favorite thing. I know it's yours too. <laughs> yep. And I think we're not mentioning it here in the tips, but that's what we do, right? Like as consultants, yeah, right. we help you dig into like, where is that goal that you've been ignoring? What can you do more efficiently or better or in a way that saves you money? And like, it, at least for me in the past year, it's been so interesting. It's interesting and it's fulfilling. And I actually like, I get excited when my ROI is like over 10X, which I know <laughs> most people would be like, that means you're not charging enough. And that, that may be true, but also there's a lot of times when you aren't sure what you're going to find, right? Yeah. And so it's like, you don't know when you upturn that rock, if you're going to find a whole bunch or not a lot. So it's hard to know. Quickly, I was just the other couple of things I was going to say kind of around like collecting is optimizing your chargeback process as a whole. I've talked about this a lot. I feel like episodes like 106 to 112, I think I talked a lot about chargebacks and optimization, et cetera. So you can go back and listen, but identifying the root causes of why chargebacks are coming in and, and propose a chargeback reduction strategies and changes. I have done that for multiple companies, both as an employee and as a consultant, and I cannot overstate how much money and opportunity and efficiencies and customer service that you're like customer experience, you're actually improving the customer experience when you look for why are people like, huh, all these people called in because they talked to that one customer service rep that promised them a refund, but they didn't want to take the extra step. So they didn't do it. Or, you know, they all ordered the same thing or whatever that is, right? Whatever those similarities are. And so you're improving customer experience and, and so many other things. Additionally, improve the representment documents. The chargeback representment process is subjective, which is really frustrating, but it 
also is advantageous because you can do some trial and errors and figure out what works and doesn't work. Don't just go to your payment processor or to Visa directly and say, how can I respond to them? Because they don't, they're just kind of guessing. Unfortunately, there's, there are a lot of subjectivities, but you can oftentimes when something is subjective, it also means that there's room for improvement. And almost always when I actually every time, mean, every time I found something that can be efficient, but there's only been like two companies I've worked with that I'm like, hey, you guys are doing a real, like your win rate's really good and your documents and templates are really good. Like you don't need me, but usually it's like, oh, you're giving them all the right information, but you're not doing it in the, you know, in the order that they're expecting to see it in, or you're not doing it in with the verbiage or the explanation that they understand. And so they all have KPIs too. And they have to, it's a human reviewing this at the processor and at the issuer, understanding what they're looking for, that can be super helpful. So there is always room for improvement there, in my opinion, and then consider implementing collections, obviously, as we just talked about. But those are some of my specific tips. But obviously, I mean, there's always more. And I think really going with some of your more broad suggestions, especially doing the bottom up and the top down like analysis, that's where you're going to find those new opportunities and those couch questions, so to speak. Yeah, I think it's great because at least if I look at the tips we gave, I think you started with optimizer of the clients and we ended up optimize your chargebacks. Because this is what you do at these times. You optimize yeah. and you optimize and you optimize. That's a, a lot of what we were talking about is how to get there. And I think that's super valuable. And specifically, I mean, definitely you have done whole episodes on optimizing chargebacks, which <laughs> are great. And I, who don't have a lot of need for chargeback optimization in my standard work, found those super interesting. And yeah, I, I think that there's definitely a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, I think there's, it's just a different way of thinking about things, right? But having that feedback loop. And I think we've kind of said this before, but just to kind of wrap it up, like I think it's, these are obviously things that can be done at any time. However, the need is there now. And I think that they'll be more appreciated by the business as well. When you're being proactive and you're showing, hey, we are we're being too permissive here. So we need to be more conservative, but then in other places we need to be more permissive or whatever. Right. And just assessing everything, doing kind of a health check. I think those are really important to do. I've been brought in several times to do that. Like just kind of like, let's look at the process and just tell us what we can do better or differently. And these are things you can do your on your own as well, but like just, or talking with your peers, Hey, did you guys ever do this? Or what did you do for it? Et cetera. I think also just making sure that you're tracking and measuring these efforts and that you're reporting it back to the business. Hey, remember that business case that I did about allowing resellers or looking at our vendors or whatever? Well, we saved $1.8 million doing that in three months. That's important. I'm not necessarily saying take a lap around the building, but make sure that that's being shared. And then just always aligning with business priorities and making sure that they understand that you're on board. That will help when they're thinking about who they need to keep on board and who they don't. Team-wise, leadership-wise, et cetera. It's not going to be you know, an insurance policy, but it will help. And like we said, at least you're going to get a few more extra bullets on your resume. And then the next company you go to, you're going to know where to look when you first start and know the efficiencies and, and try to go in and start off that way. So you have a leaner process. I'd also say that it's not always going to be rough times. Things mm. are, are going to get better. Very true. But whatever you put in place now that helps you get more efficient, that helps you get more dollars for the business, that's still going to be there. That mm. Even when things are going better, this is not something that you do for your, for your business specifically now, and then it's just going to dissipate. Mm. 
it, it's going to stay with you and it's going to keep helping your business. So it's definitely worth investing in. Very true, right? Like just using the collections process, right? It's not like you're going to just stop collecting when the economy is better. It's now going to be a continued thing that's going to continue to provide dividends and compounding interest almost in a way, right? And also, I think that when you know who you can and can't collect from, that also helps with other decisions upstream. I learned that as well in the process. Looking at a credit report, we would have to sometimes, depending on the dollar amount that someone was requesting to borrow at the very beginning when they started, and we would take screenshots of them and we'd we'd record the numbers and how many open and trade lines, et cetera. And then if they went to collections, we would do it again. And it would often be night and day. And I started to realize, oh, if they're like late on something over here, I'm going to have to get in line behind their mortgage company, behind this, behind that. So we're going to make different decisions at the upfront because I know it's going to happen at the same with chargebacks, right? I know what we can win and what we can't. So if I know for sure that we can win this, if they try to come back, well, then I'm going to be a little bit more firm if they're requesting a a refund for something. So they all, I think it should all inform each other. It should be really end to end. I fully agree. Well, I should have known. We went like much longer than we usually do, but I also know that my editor is so good. Once he takes out all of my ums, this will turn into like 45 minutes. My end, it's been an hour and a half, but Gil, I just, especially it's evening your time. I just really appreciate you and your time and your candor and experience and always being willing to come on Fridology. Like I said, you are one of the favorite guests and I am so grateful for that. I'm not surprised at all, but thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. This is great. And as always, I will put your LinkedIn in the show notes so people can reach out to you if they have any other questions. Thank you very much. Yeah. Talk to you soon. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.